Welcome. Hello. How are you today? Uh, my name is Chris Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, thanks to all of you for attending, and um, thanks to our fine conference staff here at Cato. It's always uh, a challenge, but it's a particular challenge during a construction project, and yet they managed to do an excellent job, and uh, I am grateful to them. Thanks also to those of you watching online. Hello. Um, uh, before I forget, if you would, please uh, silence your, your not, not merely silence your cell phones, but please turn them off. They do interfere with our, uh, our sound system if you have a uh, 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 BlackBerry or telephone. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Jason Davidson to Cato. Uh, I first met Professor Davidson uh, in the summer of 2007 at a conference in Rome. That was rough. Uh, uh, he has since welcomed me on two different occasions to the University of Mary Washington, and uh, I'm excited to have a chance to return the favor uh, today. Uh, most importantly, I'm pleased to uh, have had an opportunity to read the book, which I read on my vacation, which uh, you might not think was light reading, but it was excellent, uh, right there by the pool. And um, this book, America's Allies in War, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq, um, really challenges some important notions about alliance politics, alliance relationships. Uh, there are some excellent recommendations in there, which hopefully we'll get into in the discussion about how uh, U.S. policymakers might be able to better manage alliance relations. Um, but it's also uh, an outstanding piece of scholarship. The, the research that went into this um, is, is, is evidenced by the very, very long uh, and, and extensive notes, uh, which uh, put my, I thought my books were thoroughly researched, but Jason put me to shame. Um, so congratulations, Jason, on a fine book. Uh, and welcome to Cato. Let me tell you just a few things about Jason before uh, I uh, bring him up here to the podium. He's an associate professor of political science and international affairs at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He earned a PhD and an MA in government from Georgetown University and a BA in political science from the University of California at Berkeley. Woohoo! Uh, Professor Davidson was a uh, 2007 recipient of uh, Mary Washington's Alumni Association Outstanding Young Faculty Award and a two-time recipient of the Academic Affairs Council Professor's Appreciation Award. He, uh, in addition to America's Allies and War, Jason is also the author of The Origins of Revisionist and Status Quo Powers, which was also published by Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, his articles have been published in peer-reviewed academic journals such as Contemporary Security Policy, Modern Italy Security Studies, and the Nonproliferation Review. And finally, uh, Dr. Davidson has written chapters in books such as Power and Transition uh, and Italy in the Post-Cold War World. So please join me in welcoming Jason Davidson. <clears throat> Thanks, Chris, and thanks to uh, all of you for coming. Well, I thought uh, we might begin uh, today with where I began uh, when I began this project. And that is to take us back to the spring of 2003 and a concept that was uh, in, the, in the news, so to speak, at the time. That concept was the coalition of the willing, you may recall it. So at the time, the Bush administration, George W. Bush's administration, was being criticized for being overly unilateral. And they responded to that criticism by uh, saying, we have a 40-nation coalition of the willing supporting the US-led uh, uh, intervention in Iraq in the lead up to the war. Well, if you fast forward then to March 20, 
2003, when U.S. ground forces crossed Iraq's border and began the invasion, there were actually only three allies accompanying U.S. troops. The British had 46,000 troops, the Australians contributed 2,000, and the Poles contributed 200 troops. A coalition of the willing, 40 countries, but only three were willing to put their troops on the line. And I was interested in this, and I decided to explore it further. And I decided to explore it further through a cross-case comparison across time. And so what the book does is it looks at seven cases where the United States used force, starting with the Vietnam War, ending with the 2003 Iraq War. And it looks at those cases where the United States used force and either asked allies to contribute or allies sort of perceived that the United States would like them to, to make a contribution. And what the book tries to do is explain why um, allies made or refused a contribution in those cases. Before I move on, I should mention that the three allies, I had to narrow it down some bit, uh, somewhat, and so the three allies that I focused on were Britain, France, and Italy. Why Britain? Well, Britain because they're the country we most expect the United States to uh, have at its side. Why France? Well, because I think conventional wisdom is we expect the French to not be with us uh, when we deploy troops abroad. Uh, why Italy? Because Italy, on the one hand, is increasingly an important contributor to US-led uses of force, and I'll mention a couple instances, but also has been understudied, has not been studied, for example, to the extent to which uh, Germany has been studied uh, up to this point. Chris is a little taller than I am, so I think I'll, I'll adjust, adjust this down. Um, so that's the general, uh, general scope of the book. Now, one thing I'd like to address before we move on is why anybody would necessarily care about this. Why would you care about America's allies and whether they provide or refuse military support for the United States? Well, the reason why you might care is because uh, the more allies contribute, all things held equal, the less we have to contribute. And granted, I'm not going to assert that allied contributions are one-to-one -one equivalents of American contributions, but all things held equal, the more allies contribute, the less we have to contribute, both in terms of, of uh, lives lost, troops deployed, and money spent. That's the single most important reason, and I would think here at Cato um, people would appreciate that. The second uh, big reason, though, has to do with legitimacy. And it's pretty widely established, something certainly we could discuss, but pretty widely established, that uh, legitimacy of uses of force increases the larger the coalition um, supporting them, so both domestically and internationally. So the Persian Gulf War, the 1991 Persian Gulf War, seen as more legitimate with a very large coalition than the Iraq War with a, with a smaller coalition, just as an example. So let me talk a little bit about the actual record of allied contribution. I mentioned these seven cases where the United States has used force and asked allies to contribute. Well, turns out that actually there's only one case out of those seven, and that is Vietnam, where no allies provided a military contribution despite, in that case, the Johnson's, Johnson administration's very sort of firm and persistent uh, calls to allies to make a contribution. So that's, only, that's the only case where no allies contributed. Iraq is the, only cal is the only case actually where two of the three allies did not contribute, in that case France and Italy. France, uh, as we know, provided uh, 
uh, not only um, no military support, but actually opposed the war politically. The Italians were very much in favor of the war, but just didn't provide any actual troops. And then Somalia in 1992, where the US used force and asked all three countries, Britain, France, and Italy, for a contribution. And in that case, the British government uh, refused a contribution, the government of John Major. So other than that, we've got cases Lebanon, Persian Gulf War, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. We've got cases where all three allies made a contribution. Granted, they made different contributions, and we can talk about the size of those contributions if folks are interested. Uh, but they all contributed. They all made a military contribution when the, the conflict began. So how do we explain the varying record of allied contribution over time? That's the core research question that I tried to explore across those seven instances and the three countries, so a total of 21 cases. I should notice before I note before I move on that um, the primary uh, method that I'm using here is qualitative research methods, so case study methods, looking both at secondary sources, looking at um, documents like uh, parliamentary debates, formal speeches, but then I also engaged in 60 uh, original interviews for the purpose of the book um, that I used um, 60 original interviews specifically for the Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq cases that I used to draw my conclusions. So in the book, I look at two competing explanations for why allies might provide or refuse those military contributions uh, to US-led uh, uses of force. My own explanation, and my own explanation is, has essentially three parts to it. Uh, alliance, threat, and prestige, and then the third, domestic politics. So let me take them in order. The first reason why allies might contribute is because of the value that they put place in their alliance with the United States. Makes sense, right? These are cases where the United States is leading the use of force. It's asking allies to contribute. So the more they value that alliance relationship with the United States, the more likely they are going to be to contribute and therefore maintain that relationship into the future. You make the contribution, it's costly, but you get the benefit out in terms of the long-term relationship with the United States. Well, um, a good case of this, a good instance of this, is the 2003 Iraq War and specifically British policy, where uh, not only do I think that uh, alliance um, value in that case was an important factor, I argue in the book it was the most important factor in the British decision. Yes, uh, Blair and his government believed Saddam Hussein's Iraq was a threat, but I think the more important factor in that case was uh, Britain's alliance with the United States. Why? Because Blair knew uh, that not only the United States was powerful, et cetera, but that uh, the British government had a special degree, an extraordinary degree, really, of influence with the United States. That is, it was able um, to get the U.S. government to change policy on critical issues, and therefore he wanted to maintain that access, that influence, and uh, made a contribution in that particular case. The second element in terms of my explanation is, um, I mentioned, threat and prestige. And the way to think about this is there really are two dimensions when an ally is considering uh, to make, whether to make a contribution or not. The first dimension is uh, their relationship with the United States. The second dimension is characteristics of the particular instance or case of intervention. So if you think about the 2003 Iraq War, it's one thing to say um, what uh, relationship Britain has with the United States. It's a second aspect is how Britain views the Iraq case and the merits of that case, in other words. And in terms of the merits of the case, I argue there are two, really two issues that are critical. One is whether the target of intervention is a threat to the country's national interest, the allies' national interest, 
So if you think, for example, about the 1999, this is one of the cases in the book, the 1999 Kosovo air war, and you think about it from the French perspective, the French were very convinced that regional stability, regional instability in the Balkans was a serious threat to their national interest. That if they couldn't stop uh, the sort of um, uh, ethnic conflict, the genocide in Kosovo, that that would be bad for uh, their economic interests as well as for refugee flows, for a variety of factors that would negatively uh, impact their economy, et cetera. So the French were more inclined, all things held equal, to intervene without regard to their relationship with the United States. So that's threat to their national interest. The related element is whether a country's prestige is implicated in a particular case. And prestige is kind of a tricky concept, so I'll go ahead and offer the definition that uh, political scientist Robert Gilpin offers, which is that prestige is the social recognition of a country's power. So in this particular case, what it means is um, that the ally perceives that it's, the recognition of its power is on the line, and that essentially, if it does not contribute, it's the social recognition of its power will decline, that people will think that it's not willing or able to act when uh, the crunch comes. Think again about France and Kosovo. Uh, not only was Kosovo in Europe, which made it uh, conspicuous in terms of the, a French contribution, uh, but moreover, the French had played a critical role in the early stages of the conflict, hosting the Rambouillet Conference in, in France. So if the French had not then contributed once uh, hostilities commenced, France, France's uh, lack of contribution would have been conspicuous by its absence, and French power would have been devalued, all things held equal. So the French had to contribute in that particular case. The third and final element of, of my argument, the argument that um, I proposed uh, from the outset as, as uh, imagining that it was the, the best explanation, is domestic politics. And the way to think about domestic politics if you're a social scientist is this is sort of an intervening variable. This is a, this is a variable that can come into place and prevent a government that otherwise might make a military contribution can prevent that government from actually doing so. But it only happens when two factors maintain, I propose. The first is that the domestic public in the allies, uh, the allies' domestic public, that that domestic public would be opposed uh, to their country deploying troops. But it's not enough to have that allies' domestic public opposed. In fact, the other critical variable is that the allies' opposition party or coalition has to also be opposed. Why is this the case? It's the case because only when both the public and the opposition party or coalition are opposed can the median voter who's angry that their country is, is going to contribute troops or has just contributed troops, only then can that angry voter take their vote away from the sitting government that they uh, theoretically voted for in the previous election and give it to the opposition party. And that's a double threat in electoral terms uh, to the sitting government. I'll give you a quick example. In the lead up to the 2003 Iraq War, uh, Italy's um, government then, as today, led by Silvio Berlusconi, um, was leaning toward making a contribution. Berlusconi saw the Iraqi threat in similar ways to George W. Bush. He valued Italy's alliance relationship with the United States, but at the last minute chose not to. Why not? Well, it wasn't just the Italian public that was opposed in large numbers. Three quarters, roughly, of the Italian public were opposed to uh, sending troops, even if there had been a second or a subsequent UN Security Council resolution. But 
the critical factor in that case was that the center-left opposition in Italy was also opposed to the deployment of troops. And therefore, Berlusconi knew that those angry voters that were out there protesting in the streets would take their vote away from the center-right, give it to the center-left, and his government would suffer. Very briefly, let me mention the other explanation, <clears throat> excuse me, the other explanation that I explore in the book. It essentially has two components. One is the identity of the different actors. Uh, and then the second component is uh, international norms. And so this alternative explanation proposes that when an actor's image of itself is essentially what we mean by identity, when its image of itself is consistent with the case of intervention, then countries are likely to make a contribution. Uh, if their image is not consistent with that particular case, then they're unlikely. Uh, so for example, think about Somalia in 1992. The French have an image of themselves as having sort of a civilizing mission. They're, they're um, sensitive to human rights. They saw the suffering of the Somali people, and therefore they were more likely to make a contribution. That would be how that explanation would work. Uh, international norms. International norms mean things that are seen as appropriate by states in international politics. So, Think perhaps about the 2001 Afghanistan case and the French, um, they, uh, or Italians for that matter. In both cases, the uh, action was seen as widely legitimate in the sense of US reaction to the 9-11 attacks, and also was endorsed by the UN Security Council, and therefore was normatively uh, backed and justified. Let me turn now um, to the book's core findings. So I looked at these 21 cases, right? Seven instances across the three countries for 21 cases total. And the single most important finding of the book is that, in fact, the alliance, threat and prestige, and domestic politics explanation um, explains the cases much better than the identity and norms explanation. So in fact, the, uh, the alliance uh, threat and domestic politics explanation explains 20 of the 21 cases, whereas the identity and norms explanation only explains uh, about 11 of the 21 cases. That's the big overall finding. Then there are some more specific findings about the specific components of that uh, alliance, threat, and domestic politics argument. And the one that I'll start with is the one that surprised me the most as the author. And in fact, what's interesting about this is there's so many moving pieces and the interviews were very, um, very time consuming um, that I didn't even know this uh, conclusion until I got down and started to write the, the concluding chapter in the book, which is, which is always, uh, always good. It shows that the, the research is, is useful. It's teaching you things. There's a conventional wisdom in the study of burden sharing, which is what the literature that this book is in, and that conventional wisdom is that alliance value, the, um, the, the, the weight that a country puts in its relationship with the United States, is the most important factor in cases like this. And it makes sense. It's plausible, at least, right? The reason why it's plausible is the United States is an incredibly powerful country. So certainly, the US is powerful. When the US uses force and it asks allies to make a contribution, plausible to imagine that allies, in fact, are going to be most likely to make a contribution for that reason. Well, actually, what I find in the book is that the uh, threat to national interest and prestige factor explains cases in almost three times, it explains more cases, almost three times more cases than the alliance value factor. So that is countries in 17 out of the 21 cases, the most important 
uh, reason why they contributed was their national, a threat to their national interest or their prestige implicated in the case. And in only six of the 21 cases was alliance value the most important reason for them to make a contribution. And uh, when I uh, arrived at that conclusion, having looked at all the cases, uh, what came to mind immediately was the famous Palmerston quote, which I'll paraphrase, which says, uh, he was speaking, of course, of the British, um, says, essentially, we have no eternal allies, only eternal interests. And that's what um, that claim seems to, uh, seems to indicate. The third finding is that prestige, um, while certainly not the most important factor, um, prestige ended up being the most important factor in 11 of the 21 cases. And prestige hasn't been studied in previous scholarship on transatlantic burden sharing. So that's something that I think needs more, more look in the future, that allies often contribute just because of um, the fact that they want to show others that they can, that they're willing and able to because of how they think it's going to uh, affect their future relations with other states. And then the fourth and final find, core finding of the book is that uh, the domestic political situation, while it is very rare that it, that it can impact the outcome, it does on occasion, but only when both the domestic um, public and the opposition coalition or opposition party um, join together in opposing the deployment of force. Now, the last thing I'd like to say today is a, just a few words about policy recommendations. So if um, I'm right in, in, uh, in some of these um, claims, uh, what should the United States do differently? Well, the first thing I'd like to suggest is that while, um, as I just said, alliance value was only important in six of the 21 cases, it also happens to be the most manipulable of the different variables. So if we think about situations where the United States has decided already that it's going to use force and it's looking for allies to contribute, the one thing that it can do is give allies more access and more influence uh, and thus make them more likely, to, more likely to contribute all things held equal. Um, maybe say a little bit more uh, about that in, in uh, Q&A. I know uh, people might have some issues with that, so I'll leave it, leave it there for now. Um, what about threat and prestige? Well, a couple things about threat and prestige in terms of how they might impact policy. The first is that, and while it's not terribly common, it is possible for the United States to influence allies' perceptions of whether a, a case of intervention is a threat to their national interest through intelligence sharing. Um, and even after Iraq, I think we still might be able to do that in some cases. Uh, we also can uh, potentially uh, impact whether allies perceive their prestige to be implicated by build. There's kind of a snowball effect here where the bigger the coalition we build, the more um, allies' prestige is going to be on the line because they're going to see um, uh, their peer competitors making a contribution, and thus they're going to want to sign up as well. Um, but that said, the threat and prestige factors are um, pretty firm, and they're pretty hard to manipulate. And what that means is we need to be aware, the United States needs to be aware ahead, ahead of time that there are many cases where allies simply won't contribute no matter what we do, no matter how much we offer them in foreign aid or no matter how much we threaten them or make, um, make violent uh, rhetorical statements. And in those cases, I think the United States needs to look deeply at the situation, needs to consider its national interests and act and ask itself, excuse me, ask itself whether if it has to act alone, it should act at all. 
And with that, I will uh, look forward to uh, Professor Kupchin's comments. Thank you, Jason. Um, now it's my uh, pleasure to introduce our distinguished commentator, Professor Charles Kupchin. This is at least the second time that I've hosted Charlie here, and I think you've probably been here a few times even before that. Welcome back, Charlie. Uh, Dr. Kupchin is the Whitney Shepherdson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and Professor of International Relations at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Dr. Kupchin was Director for European Affairs at the National Security Council during the first Clinton administration. Uh, before joining the NSC, he worked in the U.S. Department of State at the Policy Planning Staff. And prior to government service, he was an Assistant Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Charlie is the author of a number of books, including The End of the American Era, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Geopolitics of the 21st Century, Nationalism and Nationalities in the New Europe, and the Vulnerability of Empire, as well as numerous articles in international, on international and strategic affairs. His most recent book is How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, which was published uh, last year by Princeton University Press. And this is an account of how nations escape geopolitical competition and replace hostility with friendship. Dr. Kupchin uh, received a BA from Harvard University and an MPhil and DPhil degrees from Oxford. So thank you, and welcome, uh, Charlie Kupchin. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And uh, thanks to both of you for uh, inviting me here today. Uh, Jason didn't mention this, but he was a student of mine at Georgetown. In fact, maybe, were you my first doctoral student? You may have been. Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. So it's, it's especially uh, uh, pleasing for me to, to see a, a student make it good. And uh, let me just congratulate you on a, on a job very well done. I don't have uh, any fundamental disagreements with, uh, with the analysis that you provide in the book. I think it's, uh, it's well-researched. I found the argument convincing. And there is an, a, a kind of a, an intuitive appeal to the argument, uh, which is that in the end of the day, fairly traditional realist concerns like threat and uh, a nation's concern with its ability to project a, a reputation for power uh, trumps other concerns uh, when it comes to the question of whether you're going to put skin in the game. Uh, and so I, you know, I, 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 I didn't come away from the book uh, scratching my head. I, can, uh, I came away from the book nodding. Uh, and so my, my comments are really uh, not so much uh, taking issue with, with your analysis or your cases, but pushing you a little further on, uh, on a couple of fronts. The first uh, is to ask you to unpack a little bit the alliance value variable, because in some ways it's the most intellectually uh, rich part of the argument. Uh, and it, I think it comes in, in different kinds of flavors. And, and I was just uh, ruminating about how this issue of alliance value plays in different countries across time. Uh, and and I, I came up with uh, some, a kind of catalog, if you will, uh, of, of concerns that are, that are really quite different in flavor. Uh, and I, I wanted to just run them by you and elicit your response. One is the, the most, what, what, perhaps the most straightforward meaning of the issue alliance value. And that is that the countries in question 
see implicitly a quid pro quo in their willingness to go to war for an ally. And I think that that certainly mattered, let's say, uh, in Central Europe vis-a-vis -vis the Iraq War in 2003, where most Central European governments, at least from my reading, didn't believe in the case for war. They didn't see their national security interests on the line. I, I would go so far as to say that the majority of them thought that this was a pretty stinky idea. Right? And they went to war, and Poland took a sector in the occupation of Iraq, mainly because they said, we live in a dangerous neighborhood. We need to save for a rainy day. And if we stand by the United States, when its chips are down in Iraq, they're going to stand by us when the Russians start getting uppity again. And I think a similar argument applies to Japan. Right? Japan had no real tangible interest in being in Iraq. And in the end of the day, it really, as far as I could tell, cost more to protect the Japanese troops that were in Iraq than those Japanese troops were actually delivering to the alliance effort. But nonetheless, Japan did it because they said, We've got China over there and North Korea over there. We better do something to demonstrate to the United States that we still love them so that they're going to stay with us here in, in Japan. Uh, and so that that's sort of the most straightforward understanding of alliance value. Uh, but then I think there are, there are others. For example, in, in the case of Italy, a country you know better than I, but you know my sense is that, that there was, in some ways, identity politics at play there, that, that Italy wants to stand with the United States. Italy wants to demonstrate solidarity with the United States. Berlusconi loved the ability to get into the Oval Office, that there was a certain kind of cachet uh, attached to being with the United States. Uh, and that, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to threat versus that sort of identity politics, uh, I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about why you think in the Italian case they really perceived a threat in the cases that you look. Kosovo is, is, is different because in, in the Balkans in general because you've got refugees and Kosovo's close. But, but Iraq, uh, you know, what, what, how, do you, how do you distinguish between this broader concern about aligning, alignment with the United States versus what you might call a more direct threat concern. Then I think in the, in the, the case of, say, the Dutch, the Danes, the smaller countries in Western Europe, they're not really concerned about a Russian invasion. They see the alliance value as more a kind of counterweight to, to France and, and Germany and some of the larger countries in Europe. Uh, and they want to keep the United States in the game in some ways as a, as, a, as a balancing mechanism politically, not really in terms of, of a, an aggregation of military power against someone else or, or saving for a rainy day. And then, you know, Germany, Germany is, is, is a kind of strange player uh, in this story in the sense that historically speaking and, and in terms of, of kind of the weight of history, you could argue that the alliance is more important to Germans than, than anybody. 
right, that, that you know, the, the Atlantic Alliance is sacred in Germany, at least it was. But nonetheless, Schroeder campaigned against the war and broke with NATO. Merkel just not, uh, not only did she not send troops or, or, or boats or aircraft to Libya, but she actually voted to abstain in the Security Council. Uh, and so there, you know, you would expect the alliance value argument to weigh heavily, and in some ways, the opposite happens. They kick the alliance in the teeth. Uh, is that just domestic politics? How do you, how does that fit into your argument? Uh, two other uh, quick issues I wanted to raise, both of which you, you touch on, but I want to push you a little bit more. You know, I, I, I take your point that, that uh, the U.S. in some ways doesn't have all that much leverage, uh, that, you know, that, that whether or not a, a country puts troops on the ground or contributes to the mission seems to be a function of relatively uh, constant or static forces that are not that affected by U.S. diplomacy. And I think that one piece of evidence that buttresses your interpretation is that the Obama administration came into office with a, uh, a, a view that if it carried out a nicer brand of diplomacy, if it was more multilateral, if it gave the allies voice, coming to one of your points, that it would get more in return. And has it? Not really. Maybe, you know, a dozen troops here, a dozen troops there, and another helicopter or two for Afghanistan. But the idea that somehow when Bush left office and Obama came in, that the allies would up their ante by 40 or 50 percent, none of that has come true. And that suggests to me that U.S. diplomacy matters, but maybe only at the margins, uh, and that we don't have a whole lot of leverage when it comes to twisting arms or be ab being able to make offers that will get uh, allies to, to line up. Uh, final issue, and this comes to the question of, of you know, moving forward, and I think that you know, Chris and I, for example, because uh, we've been in debates on this in the, in the not too recent past, believe that the United States moving forward should and will pull in its horns. That, we're, that because of the deficit because of strategic weariness, because we are in a black hole in Afghanistan, and most people are finally waking up to that reality, the trend lines in American security policy are going to be to do less. And if there's one part of the world where we will do less, it's Europe, because Europe is at peace, and they don't need the American nanny anymore. There are two different ways to, to kind of interpret the the implications of that for burden sharing. The first is, and this would be the, I think, the, the conventional wisdom, that when the Europeans realize that we're not going to take care of them anymore, they will finally step up to the plate. They will make efforts to aggregate their capability, and they will, they will carry more weight because they have to. They've been free riding on us. The free ride is coming to an end. It's time to ante up. I'm not sure that your analysis provides support for that interpretation, because the other possible outcome is that Europe will look at, at, at the alliance, 
see it as a decreasing value because the United States isn't going to be there. U.S. forces aren't opening new bases in Poland, as the Poles want, right? They're getting a battery of patriots that traipses through once a year and is operational for 15 minutes. That's not what they wanted. They wanted Uncle Sam moving in. And so the other interpretation would be that, uh, that the alliance is of less concern to them, is, of, is of, of less value to them, and they therefore do less to keep it together, i.e., the burden-sharing problem becomes worse, not better, when Europeans are confronted with the prospect of American retrenchment. Just wanted to put that on your plate and turn it back to you. Uh, do you want to do you want to respond to those questions first, Jason? Or sure. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, and then I'll go ahead. And yeah. Then, and then here you are. Um, well, always nervous. I'm sure uh, you can. Uh, those of you in the audience who've who've been through anything like a dissertation, um, you know, always nervous then to have to come back to the stage and have you know like reliving that that moment again, having your professor, your former professor, comment. So. Um, I'm, I'm pleased that I got away as, I, I think, as, as unscathed maybe as I did. Um, let me, I don't know that I want to address all of these, but I think, I think I'll try to run through them very quickly in turn. Um, Italy and, I mean, I guess there's two things about Italy and the Iraq War. One is the extent to which the alliance um, argument is similar to the alliance argument that I argue, or is it more of an identity argument? And then the second question is the relative importance of alliance uh, and uh, threat. Um, and I think the alliance argument may have, there is a component to Berlusconi always that seems to be about cachet and seems to be about getting attention. Um, uh, but I think there is also more of a kind of continuity there in the sense that um, you saw this in the Italian press in the period leading up to the war. Um, there, it was striking. It was extraordinary the degree of access that Berlusconi had to Bush. And granted, he didn't have the payoff in terms of outcomes that Blair had, um, but there was at least the prospect relative to past uh, Italian prime minister's relationships to American presidents, that Italy would, um, moving forward, uh, have some real payoffs in terms of policy terms. Um, the, uh, there's this helicopter deal that ultimately the Obama administration went back on, and that was the one, that was the one big payoff point. Um, but so, in other words, I think there is some, some, some case for, the, for, for alliance interest. Now, on threat, um, what I will admit is... Um, that there was a debate about threat in Italy at the time. That is, was Saddam Hussein's Iraq a threat to Italy? Um, and I think that's part of what explains the center left's very different position. The center left did not see uh, Iraq as a threat to Italy, whereas the center right and the government essentially did. Um, I think we could, might have a little bit of skepticism about the center right, but from my interviews, what I gathered was that people did see Saddam Hussein's um, Iraq and its weapons of mass destruction as a threat. Uh, the terrorist ties to terrorism argument did not um, did not hold water much of anywhere in Europe, as a, as I think people know. Um, but the WMD threat itself um, seemed to have at least captured the center right in Italy. Um, very quickly on Germany, because. Uh, I'll just note that I, I didn't, of course, um, study Germany in the book, but, but 
how does the German story in terms of Iraq play out? And one thing that I would stress, at least in terms of the book's analysis, is German perception of threat, that the Germans did not, like the French, they did not see Saddam Hussein's Iraq as a threat. They saw Iraq as being contained, um, even though they uh, most of them did believe that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, but they saw those WMD as not being threatening to anyone other than Iraq's own people, um, and therefore um, they saw no sort of compulsion. The other thing that I would add about Germany, again, I'll caveat this by saying I'm not a German, uh, an expert in Germany or German foreign policy, is that I think Germany is different because of its experience. I think it's one of those unique countries that has fundamentally changed because of its past, and it does fit more with the Kagan-esque uh, you know, Europe is is um, from Venus kind of of uh, of, of thinking. Um, in that German, the Germans are, I think, just innately skeptical about the use of force. Period, um, and that makes them that makes them different. And what about the Obama administration and um, the fact that we haven't seen a real turn? Um, what I would actually argue is striking about the Obama administration. On the one hand, Obama had this. Uh, he talked about alliances during the, the 08 campaign, and he had this, um, certainly was an improvement relative to the Bush administration. But for example, I'm sure many of you have, have uh, looked at and have analyzed the, the debate over the, the surge in Afghanistan. What you don't see in that debate over the surge in Afghanistan, the debate over strategy, where to move, you know, what kind of strategy to have moving forward in Afghanistan, was Obama sitting down with allied leaders, taking their perspectives into account and making changes, giving them influence and impact on the outcome. Um, I think had we been more likely to do that, remains to be seen, but I think had we been more likely to do that, we might have seen more allied contributions. Um, finally, moving this question of moving forward and where we're headed, um, if the United States draws in its horns, what impact will it have? A great question. Um, Here's what I would say in terms of the European countries, that the European countries, um, I think, and you framed it uh, you know, very well, I think in conflicts, future conflicts on the European periphery, we're going to see countries like Britain, France, and Italy do more. And I think um, Chris is right about that in the power problem. I think Char Charlie's right in terms of how he just framed it. But when we talk about cases beyond, not just beyond Europe, but cases where the Europeans don't have their national interest implicated, their prestige implicated, and the US asks for contributions, if the US is giving less to them, we can expect them to be willing to give less to us, all things held equal. So I'll um, stop there. I very much look forward to hearing all of your comments. And thank Charlie for taking the time out to, uh, to come over today. Great. Well, thank you both. Um, I'm going to uh, exercise my prerogative as, uh, as the chair to, to pick up on, on one last point, which I was planning to ask anyway. Um, and you allude to this. It's, it's, it's the last line in the book, which you, which you mentioned in your, in your remarks as well, is if we don't have allies, is it perhaps an indication that we shouldn't be doing what we're trying to do? There's an, there is a, the direction of this research is, is clearly to try to explain why countries provide 
support and the, the presumption, the kind of the, the inferences that we want them to provide support. But in retrospect, we look back on the Iraq case, and um, might this have been a missed opportunity on the part of the, of the Bush administration on the United States to actually take heed of the, of the allies' warnings and revisit their own assumptions about the nature of the threat? Um, and so I'll pick up on the, on the final point you made, Jason. You said, if Barack Obama had taken the allies' uh, concerns or considerations into account, they might have had more influence over policy. Yes, that's possible. Or he might have done something different. He might not have doubled down. Uh, and I think that's, that's worth considering. Um, one other point, which is going to sound a little um, uh, maybe too cute by half, um, but, I, but I wrestle a little bit with this question of legitimacy. And interestingly enough, for all of his disdain for uh, Europeans from Venus and Americans from Mars, uh, Bob Kagan returned to this question of legitimacy in his follow-on essay and ultimately his, his follow-on book, because he seemed to appreciate belatedly uh, that, that there is something to this question of legitimacy. I'm still struggling with which direction the causal arrows go, because you imply, and you're not the only one, there are many others who imply that when uh, you have a number of allies with you, it confers legitimacy on a particular operation. You quote Eisenhower, who says, essentially, if you don't have allies, you're the equivalent of Genghis Khan, which is a good line. Um, but might the causal arrows point in the other way? This is going to sound like a bit of a tautology, but is the fact that allies contribute the, the, indica the indicator that this is a legitimate intervention, not the other way around. And I, again, it's a, it's an impossible question to answer. It does it kind of it does become kind of a kind of a a circular question. But you recognize that that it's not it's not clear which way these these arrows point. So anyway, I wanted to put those two on the table. I'll give Jason a chance to respond to them. But I also want to have uh, give him a chance to uh, to uh, have some Q and A here. We've got about half an hour. Um, we have a few ground rules here at Cato. You're, you're probably going to be familiar with them. They're not unlike a lot of other ground rules in town. First of all, uh, wait for the microphone. That's especially for the benefit of people who are watching or listening online. Um, please uh, identify yourself. And uh, the Jeopardy rule applies. Please uh, phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, please. So uh, uh, questions right here. Uh, yeah, a uh, question about our current uh, kinetic military operations in Libya. Um, <clears throat> is this, in your opinion, a, a case where uh, the United States said to France and, and the UK, yes, we want to go in, we want to do something about it, but we can't be seen as leading, so you go in first and we'll back you up? Or was this a case that we were reluctant to go in, the French said, we can use these same three rules to force the U.S. hand, and they would act knowing that we would be forced to follow those rules and follow them in. Who is leading? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And I'm, I'm curious what Charlie thinks of this. Um, it's called leading from behind is the yeah. new favorite. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I, as this was unfolding, of course, the book was already, uh, was already um, past, well, far past any impact I could have on it. But yeah, I was I was kind of glad because I think it's a, I think it's a very difficult. Uh, here's the way I saw things unfold. Uh, on the one hand, there is a, there's an interesting. There are some similarities with, for example, Kosovo, where some allies were out in front. In that case, the the Brits were out in front. 
there's a, then there's a moment, though, out in front in the sense of do we want to use force at all? Then there's a moment when you actually decide to use force, and the question is, who's going to contribute how much, essentially? Um, and what I found interesting is in those first few days, a number of players referred to the operation as U.S.-led, which it was for the first you know, 48 hours, 72 hours, something like that. Um, and then the U.S. very nicely, uh, I think, uh, orchestrated this maneuver of pullback and essentially let. What I think my analysis actually shows, um, aside from this question of who's leading and who's following in this case, what I think my analysis shows um, that's useful is that the Brits and the French contributed because their interests were on the line because the regional stability ramifications and the economic interests via oil were such that they, were, they had to, to intervene in that particular case. Um, one last little thing, which is the Italians, if people haven't noticed this and might not notice uh, with Italy, but they initially weren't contributing any planes, and then they announced that they would be contributing planes. When did they announce that they would be contributing planes? Uh, the day after President Obama called Silvio Berlusconi and said, we'd really like you to contribute. Some, some aircraft, right. um, demonstrating, again, I think that alliance value uh, alliance value matters. But, yeah, I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Charlie has to say. Do you have anything to add to this, or do, do you uh, choose to? I, you know, I, my read of, of the beginning of the, of the campaign is that the United States was not enthusiastic, that it got dragged in kicking and screaming, and that had it been up to the United States, we would have done nothing. Uh, what turned Obama seems to have been a combination of pressure from Sarkozy and, and Cameron and the decision by the Arab League to call for a no-fly zone. And I think that would put Obama in an awkward position because he's been saying, where are our allies? Why are we always the ones holding the bag? Uh, and, and in some ways, for the U.S. to veto the operation would have been you know, an act of unilateralism. So I, I think he, he kind of got cornered and went along for the ride, which is why relatively quickly he backed away and said, okay, we've done the bulk of the fighting for this first week and now we're handing it off to our allies. Uh, whether there is a, another story to be told, which was in the press about, you know, he's really changed his mind, He's less realist and more idealist. He believes that in the re responsibility to protect. I'm sure some of that went on, but my sense is that this was, this, this was mostly about kind of intra-alliance dynamics than an epiphany uh, in the White House that we should now be flying air cover for protesters. We're not doing it in Syria. We're not doing it in Bahrain. I hope we don't. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I see this as in, as in some ways uh, an aberration, not a new rule. Uh, right here, sir. <clears throat> yes, my name is Russell King. I'll direct this to Mr. Davidson. Um, when we were attacked on September 11th, that was an asymmetric attack, and Afghanistan was the country, but it was not a formal invasion. But about a year ago, Poland was... Uh, there was a plane crash uh, in Russia that killed a bunch of Poland officials. And I believe there was about a week investiga uh, investigation, and I don't, as far as I know, it was just the Poles. I don't think it was NATO. And in fact, it was an Icelandic volcano that resulted in airspace uh, being uh, 
closed so that, so that uh, Western Europeans couldn't even make the funeral a week later. And uh, do you think uh, after one week of investigation in, in FSB-controlled territory, the Poles uh, could really have determined whether or not it was an act of Russian treachery? And should we reinvestigate this? I think I'm going to pass on that one. I, I really don't know enough on that. It's really far beyond the subject of the book, and I really just don't know enough to comment. I think it's a, a, an interesting question. Let me, let me try to rephrase the question in a, in a somewhat different direction that I think relates to the book. We, we have seen a number of cases uh, where uh, challenges to alliance security uh, were, but there is a certain ambiguity about the challenges to, uh, to the security of our allies. And thus, we've discovered that the Article 5 provision, which when it was drafted seemed quite clear, has for a number of different reasons not been invoked, with the interesting exception when of 9-11, the only time it's been evoked in the alliance's history. Um, I wonder about this as well. And actually, it relates to another question I was going to ask about the book. Is You used the term alliance, I think, in a somewhat uh, too loose way. So for example, there are, you referenced Berlusconi's close personal relationship to Bush. You also make reference to the, the, the singular importance of the special relationship for Tony Blair and other British leaders, not just Blair, but also uh, uh, Thatcher and, and Major. Um, is that the same alliance that we think of as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a formal alliance which has certain formal obligations. Is it worth drawing distinctions between a special relationship and an alliance treaty commitment? Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Definitely. Um, thinking about the Article Five commitment and, and ambiguous threats, um, I guess, and, and Charlie's right. Um, going back to something that he said before, uh, and just to point this out, um, I think there is, and I think it's not necessarily inconsistent with what I'm arguing, but there's a different dynamic at place when we're talking about the former Soviet bloc countries that are now NATO members and why they make contributions versus, that is, um, to get to your, your point, uh, I think for the most part, what the British, the French, and the Italians uh, think of when they think of alliance value is not that the U.S. is going to protect them in terms of their territorial integrity against right. external attack. Um, now, that said, one of the things that I found most interesting in, in, uh, in London um, was a fellow by the name of Alan Dobson, who's uh, the head of the uh, Transatlantic Studies Association, has written on U.S.-British um, relations and said, you know, look, it's always in the back of the minds of British policymakers is, what if another Falklands pops up? And this goes to Charlie's comment about drawing our horns in, right? If another Falklands pops up and um, the Brits need us, again, not to be actively involved in that case, but providing, my understanding is critical intelligence. The U.S. provided critical intelligence um, uh, for, the, for the Brits. Um, they want us to be on side. Um, and so those ambiguous threats, I think, are as important maybe as the existential ones in terms of, in terms of future, uh, future, uh, future cases. Now, on this question of, you know, the alliance, you know, I did struggle with this. I'll just admit it in the book. And, and um, you know, I think there are times when um, what we're talking about is the U.S. alliance through NATO, and there are times when we're just talking about the U.S., the bilateral relationship and times 
when maybe we're talking about NATO, although I would suggest that NATO really only matters to most of the countries because of the U.S. role in it. And that's, and that's why I think it's, it's defensible for the most part to, to combine the two. Okay. Uh, right here. Uh, Eric Shireman, CDIP. Uh, were we to use your framework to understand our troubled alliance with Pakistan, I suppose you could say that they do not uh, socially recognize our power, and perhaps they don't see us adding value to their deterrence of India. Is there anything else in your um, study that would help us understand why we can't uh, have some closer co cooperation? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the single most important reason is that from their perspective, their national interest is served by playing a double game, right? Um, I, I, think, I, think that's, I think that's it in a nutshell. Um, and then, yes, the, the, the value that they derive from their alliance relationship with the United States is sufficient to keep them doing enough to keep us from getting more hostile toward them, but it's not sufficient for them to, to fundamentally change, change their behavior. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's... You add that? Uh, over here. Pat Span. Um, I'm wondering, the comment of both of you, if you look through the recent past, say since the uh, Vietnam era, is do you see a, 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 a finite time coming and ending for either NATO or especially U.S. involvement with NATO. And I'm thinking like, I, as far as I know, we still have tens of thousands of troops in Germany. And I guess the question is why? Well, the end of NATO, Jay? <laughs> um, I'd be out of a job. Really <laughs> um, no, uh, I think I think in terms of the actual deploy, I mean, there are two questions. One is the question of the deployment. The other is the question of um, the alliance itself. Uh, and I don't know that I think the deployment is in the, the deployments um, to Western Europe are important, maybe for two reasons. The primary one is their symbolic um, resonance in terms of U.S. commitment to, to Western Europe. Um, but then the second is lots of places, not Germany per se, but lots of places in terms of our bases, the, not our bases, but the bases where we're able to um, uh, either have our troops deployed or our planes deployed or aircraft deployed and then, and then use them um, and use them other places where we want to use them. And that's one thing I think we need to think about when we think about what value alliances have for the United States is the value that our bases in places like Italy um, the value that those bases have that if we ended our relationship with NATO, for example, wouldn't have. The other is the question, I think, of, um, yes, in my study, only six of 21 cases, alliance value was the most important factor. But, you know, in those six cases, allies made contributions. And do we want, you know, is it, I, I think it's a good question. I think we should be posing the question of the extent to which these alliances are valuable. But if we want allied contribution, we're probably going to need to maintain those relationships and, and, uh, and, and, um, and put effort into preserving them. Uh, I, you if know, you don't offer an intervention, I will. And you're not going to like where I'm going to go with it. So <laughs> I figured I'd give you a chance. Well, I'm going to preempt what you're going to say. 
Uh, you know, if we, if we had been in this room in 1989 after the wall came down, or, two th or 92, 93, after the Soviet Union went belly up, and, and said to ourselves, let's imagine that it's 2011, 20 years later. Is it conceivable that NATO will have 50,000 troops in Afghanistan and be flying an air mission in Libya? I would say, you're crazy. Won't happen. Uh, and the fact that we, we are 20 years down the road and NATO doesn't just exist, it actually is, has been fighting uh, wars, uh, is, is to me surprising and, and striking. And I think that it suggests that there is a stickiness to the Atlantic relationship that, uh, depending on where you sit, is either comforting or distressing. But the, you know, the U.S. and the Europeans keep coming back to each other because I think, come hell or high water, we are each other's best partners. Uh, and I don't think that that's going to change for a while. I don't think we are going to find in China or in India or in Brazil or in, in Turkey, even though t uh, Turkey is a NATO member, uh, a kind of uh, a part of the world where we can get help in the same way we can. That having been said, I would expect NATO to gradually become less and se less central to Americans and Europeans over time. Uh, and I agree with what Jason said that about you know, the profile of Europe. Europe will be increasingly active in its neighborhood, and I think less and less active far afield. And what that says, I think, to Americans and American policymakers is, well, let's keep it around. It's probably better to have it for when we need it than to dismantle it, but it is not going to be this, the centerpiece of American security strategy uh, as it's been. It already isn't, and I think that trend will continue. Uh, and I'll just close this point real quick. In the six cases, in the six of the 21 cases where alliance value was deemed most important to the decision to contribute troops, that's where I would ask you to press beyond the definition of alliance as NATO versus a bilateral special relationship, because that leads to an interesting counterfactual, which is imagine NATO went away in 91 or 92 and 93, and then run the scenario again. Would they still have – because, again, one of the key selling propositions of NATO, especially here in the United States, is that it delivers tangible benefits for the United States that we would not derive if it didn't exist. And that's where I think those six cases in particular might teach us something. Uh, yes, in the back. <clears throat> Hi. Uh, Chris White. I just wanted to ask about uh, the security arrangements that the U.S. has with Japan. And I want to say security arrangement because I don't really, I don't want to, don't want to call it an alliance. It's not reciprocal, that kind of thing. And I, you talked a lot about value preferences um, in alliance relationships. And I was just wondering, um, what do you think that uh, the the nature of the arrangement we have with 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 Japan says for the the possibility of that changing at some point in the future? Uh, well, that one, all, you know, I'm not, I'm not, definitely not preface all this by saying I'm not a U.S.-Japan, uh, U.S.-Japan specialist. Um, I, I mean, I tend to think that uh, on the one hand, um, 
the the relationship uh, up till this point in time, at least, um, you're right that it's not fully reciprocal. But the U.S. gets benefits out of it as well, and and specifically the U.S. gets benefits in terms of the basis that it has in uh, in the region, um, bases that it has in Japan, and the the uh, projection power projection capability that that allows the United States to have. Um, up to, up until this point, I would say. Other than the maintenance of those bases, you know, the, and the and the uh, energy that we put into that, it doesn't cost us very much. Chris may may disagree, um, uh, but uh, so you know, to me, there there's part of this, you know, and Charlie's point about stickiness. Part of the stickiness is these are countries that we have overlapping interests with, and we tend to see the world the same way as they do. We tend to to you know, not always, but we tend to. There tend to be lots of instances where we where we see eye to eye on things. Um, the Japanese have domestic, they have some domestic kind of uh, pressure against the United States, their relationship with the United States uh, is one thing I think that, that portends um, for some trouble ahead. And then the other thing uh, is that like the Germans, I think the Japanese, to a lesser extent, but the Japanese are fundamentally, have been fundamentally affected by their experience in World War II, and thus they see the world in slightly different way than, than we ever will. Um, now, with the rise of China, um, who knows in terms of in terms of how that's going to end up? Uh, back there. <clears throat> um, Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. I'd like to um, ask a question that I didn't hear, uh, rather some pre in your presentation I didn't hear about, and I'd like to throw that factor and see how it would explain. The, uh, I think the U.S. going to war in Iraq and in Libya, I'm going to take only those two and not all the others. Um, the major reason U.S. was able to go to war was that Russia, China, and possibly India backing did not decide to oppose actively in, in the same warring way as, like, I, my position was if United States Bush was to be stopped to going into Iraq, the Russians should have made a deal with Syria and said, here we are coming in too, and we'll take one part, just like the, during the Second World War it happened, and China making a deal with Iran and saying, here, we'll come through and take part of Iraq too, and then we'll decide. So that was not done, which shows that these three parties... And even in Libya, in case of Libya, they didn't vote through a veto. So I, I think this was really the crux of why United States continues to go around bullying countries or <laughs> bombing countries or invading countries. And how does that play into your uh, explanation of alliance? Because I think the United States also calls Russia an ally, too. Right, <laughs> and so, so does it call China and India, so too. Quite obviously, Jason, your research, the direction of your interviews and the like were, again, focused on this bilateral relationship, kind of trying to infer or, or sometimes explicitly stated through the interviews that, yes, the U.S. Uh, uh, position, the, the specific entreaties on the part of U.S. officials, et cetera, where do other powers relate? Might we see a very different sort of book written 20 years from now when the when these countries, these rising powers, are in a in a very different place than they were 20 years ago. 
Yeah, um, I, I think I think that's a good it's, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, and one thing that it relates to uh, there there is a, a literature and a fair amount of discussion about the lack of of counterbalancing against the United States. That historically, realists have pointed out that historically you you've seen balancing against very powerful countries. You haven't seen it against the United States. Why is that? Um, and if there were active balancing against the United States, that would probably affect how we do things. That is. You know, it's one thing if you just have to go to war with Iraq. It's another thing if you have to fight Iraq and Russia and China and India at the same time. And maybe we'd be more reluctant to do so if we, in fact, face that kind of a counter counterbalancing coalition. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a I think it's a great point. And, and like Chris said, if we were to then fast forward and think about this as a future scenario, um, there there are really two things that come to mind, or maybe three things that come to mind from an allied perspective. First of all, the costs of allied intervention go up dramatically because they're not just um, waging war against, you know, uh, a, a, a second or third rate military power, but ostensibly in the future against somebody who's serious, um, their, their national interests might be pushing them in multiple directions. And we've seen that in a couple cases, um, already where countries actually, they, they feel like from a national interest perspective, they're conflicted. And this is, I think, Italy's take early on in the Libyan case was they had ties to the Gaddafi re regime, but they also, um, uh, were being pushed, um, being concerned with the refugees. And so if you had countries uh, with strong economic ties, for example, to China or Russia, uh, for example, the Russian gas um, uh, relationship with Western Europe, um, and they had, to, they had to lose that in exchange for stopping a, a local conflict, um, that might make the equation much, much messier than, than it was in the cases that I looked at. So it's a, it's a good observation. <clears throat> Any other questions? Well, right here. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jeff Miser from uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, so threat perception was among the more important variables, and I'm just wondering if you found in your research any reason why threat perception varies among different countries, and maybe especially with Iraq in 2003, why Italy saw Iraq as a threat and maybe France didn't, so... Yeah, this is a this is a great question. Um, uh, accessing some of the some of the, maybe some of the underbelly there. Um, overwhelmingly, um, across the cases, so I'll dodge the, the Iraq question for the for the moment um, by noting that overwhelmingly across the cases, what happens is countries' national interests are affected or they're not in the sense of, you know, um, Italy and refugee flows from Kosovo, right? Um, in, in Iraq is a case where the actual perception of the threat varies. Um, and you have the Brits perceiving high threat, the Italians perceiving high threat, and the French perceiving low threat. Um, and I, first of all, because it was the rare case where, that, where the perception was more important than the actual uh, threat emanating from the, from the case of intervention, um, I didn't need really to develop an overall theoretical explanation of it. Um, I mean, I, what I probably would say it comes down to in um, the, if I, particularly if I think about the British versus French case where it was more articulated in the interviews, um, the Blair government, and not just Blair, right? Because if you look at the Chilco Iraq inquiry transcripts, you can see that it wasn't just Blair that had this view. 
but that the the tolerance, the risk tolerance on the British side was a lot lower. Tolerance in the sense of what if Saddam Hussein does X, Y, or Z with WMD was a lot lower than on the French side. The French were comfortable with the idea that deterrence had worked up until this point and it would work into the future. Um, the Brits were were a lot foggier on that. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's a great it's a great criticism. Yeah, just a, a an aside, and that is that I think that Iraq is to some extent an outlier because it it was it was far away uh, from from NATO's normal zone of operation, and there were there were quite disparate views about how much of a threat Saddam Hussein posed to either his neighbors or beyond. But I, I do think that, that ideology mattered and that there were, in my mind, three people who really believed in the mission, sincerely, deeply believed in it, heads of state, Bush, Blair, and Aznar. And they, they believed in it with a, with a sort of religious conviction and, and sort of tend to, tend to sort of see the world in black, more in black and white terms than others do. Uh, and and there, therefore, I think that the, the you know, Asnar has been a, a professor at, at Georgetown for the last few years. And so, you know, one had a chance to kind of get a sense of how he thinks. Blair I've never met, Bush I've never met, but just the, the press accounts of the way they thought about the war suggests that they were really apart. And someone like Berlusconi, uh, I, who, uh, you know, I think for Berlusconi and for Kwasniewski and for others, the war was very f instrumental. It was really the, the, uh, the management of alliance politics. Whereas those three guys, I think that they thought that they were really, you know, out there fulfilling a, a mission. All right, very good. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you, uh, Charlie, and especially Jason, for this book. And I'm going to close with uh, uh, one, uh, one recommendation. So we've heard uh, references to Poland. We've heard references to Japan. So I can't wait for the next volume in 20 years that we'll be exploring three other countries and a number of case studies on why or why not they, they contributed. Uh, please uh, join me in uh, thanking our speakers. And uh, I will see you upstairs in the Winter Garden. Thank you very much. Thank you.